What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Primal Baseball, P-R-I-M-A-L-B-S-B-L. Today on the podcast, we have Tyler Ansman of Tyler Ansman Performance, and we're going to be talking a lot about pitching performance and just how to gain how to gain velocity and how to get better as a player and a person. So Tyler, thanks for coming on and I'll let you introduce yourself even further. Yeah, man, I appreciate you having me. Um, so yeah, so I'm Tyler Ansman. Uh, background is <clears throat> I played uh, high school and college baseball, um, kind of had the, the itch to still play after college, was not good enough at that point. Um, so that's kind of what took me down kind of the training rabbit hole was kind of my issues and how I get better. Um, and so basically kind of two years after my college baseball career ended, I got the opportunity to play professional baseball because when I got done college, um, I was probably like mid to maybe touching upper eighties, like probably best was 87 or 88. Um, I was mid nineties when I finally got that opportunity two years later after kind of, you know, reading all the stuff that I could kind of educating myself on that front. Cause my background was much more in strength and conditioning at that point when I was 22. Um, and so I had to kind of dive deeper into the biomechanical side and the throwing side. So kind of read all the research I could find, um, went to some places and kind of um, learned from some of the better people in the industry. Um, and then, you know, at the behest of a physical therapist for one of the world baseball classic teams, um, ended up starting my business um, much later on, but around 2019. And I, I was more curious too. I know you said you played high school baseball and, and those issues, you know, became, became the path for you almost as if like one, one of my, I don't know if you read the book, but one of my favorite books is the obstacles away by Ryan holiday. Um, and it just seems like, yep. like those issues, you know, led you to, to where you are now. So like having, having issues throwing and, and being able to learn, the biomechanics and stuff like that just led you down the path almost like where you needed to be and, and now um, allowing you to, to run your business. Um, so I thought that, that that was a big takeaway from what I just took away for, and I hope the listeners can can understand that too. I, I really wanted to know when when you started to fall in love with baseball. Like, was it in high school when you really became became in love with baseball or was it before that? Like, when was the first time, and it can be all the way in from when you were five years old, when is the first time that you realized how impactful baseball was on your life? Yeah, I mean, it was probably when I first started playing. I, I was probably pretty young. Um, honestly, when I was when I was really, really young, I was definitely not like a um, kind of one of those naturally like great athletes in the beginning. Um, cat's trying to make an appearance. <laughs> um, I was not I was not one of those naturally great athletes in the beginning. So when when I was younger and kind of earlier on in elementary school, it was, it was not like the kind of like, I wanted to pitch. I, I vividly remember when I was in fourth grade, I wanted to pitch. I didn't get any opportunities to pitch at all that whole kind of little league season. And so that off season, every single day I dragged my dad out into the front yard and we threw, um, because the issues were twofold. One, I couldn't catch the ball being thrown back to me. So I just had to get better at some basic stuff like that. And then two, I had never pitched before. So I didn't throw hard enough. Didn't have any kind of command of the strike zone, even for like a, a fourth grader. And so we did that every day and, and kind of the next year on like a, a really small level, but I was, I was the best pitcher in the league that next year. And so I kind of immediately got a feel for like, okay, if I work hard and actually put the time and effort into this, like it does, there is kind of a payoff. Um, and certainly as you go through the higher levels, that correlation becomes a little bit less direct because everybody works hard and you're going against kind of better and better competition. But earlier on, it kind of fed that hunger because I got that kind of immediate payoff there or somewhat immediate, you know, kind of in the next year, um, kind of seeing how different I was as a player. And that kind of led me to, you know, like, okay, um, the harder I work, the better I'm going to be. And then as I go on, I can kind of fill in the gaps with kind of finding people to help me as I go. Yeah. That's an important, important lesson to learn. And it's awesome that you were able to learn it so young. Like you said, like those young years is huge for building. And I think today, a lot of kids and parents maybe don't understand what it what it actually takes to to perform at the high levels and what it takes to to be successful. Sometimes we often see the the very short clips on social media of 
people gaining like seven miles an hour in, in a week or something like that. Right. Like, I mean, it's great. Like it's, it's great to, to see those things and, and some, for some people that happens, but just knowing that, um, regardless of if that happens or not, the, the, the lesson underneath all of that, the, the hard work paying off, whether it pays off the way you think it will or not is, is a, is a great lesson to have not only for baseball, but just, um, life business, everything in general. Uh, so yeah. And, and you talked a little bit about not being a good athlete or, or not being like the best pitcher when you started. I I'm curious, did you play, you play any other sports when you were, when you were younger? Yeah. So until I got to high school, I played baseball, basketball, and soccer. And then when I got to high school, I stopped playing soccer and I just played baseball and basketball. And then uh, going into my junior year, I stopped playing basketball as well to just kind of, I wanted to just kind of focus on baseball. Um, so I played, I played multiple. And do you think that playing those, those multiple sports as a, as a young kid allowed you to become a better baseball player in, in some way and, and what ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I have, I do definitely have some thoughts on kind of the, the multi-sport participation thing. So I, I think that kind of earlier on when you're young, getting kind of a broad experience in terms of kind of movements, movement patterns, uh, you know, reacting to kind of outside stimuli, like all that stuff is super important. Um, and I don't think it necessarily needs to come from organized sports, right? Like if you have a kid who's outside and super active with their friends and they're always playing games and doing stuff like that. Like, is it the end of the world if they don't like play soccer in the fall? Like, I don't think so. I think if you like multiple sports and you get enjoyment out of playing multiple sports, you should play multiple sports, especially when you're young. Um, but if you don't, those gaps can be filled in. Like, so we have, we have some, some middle school kids who come in. Um, and so like a lot of these guys, like at this point, they, they only play baseball. Um, and it's not like a year round thing or anything, but they're not getting kind of that exposure to these other movements from other sports. Like they're not playing soccer. They're not doing gymnastics. They're not doing that. So we have to kind of fill in the gaps and give them these other things. And that can a hundred percent work. Like you can do that in the training environment. It's not a big deal. Um, but I do think it has to be one or the other. Like you're either getting it from playing multiple sports when you're really young, or you have somebody who's kind of taking you through this kind of long-term athletic development model where you're going through like, okay, we have these skills with kind of a foot-based sport like soccer, because you're not going to get that from a lot of other sports. We have like these gymnastic type skills. We have like these other kind of how you move your body through space, just like just general exposure to a lot of different things is kind of a really, a, a really important thing early on. Um, and so I don't think it needs to be multiple sports. And I, and I do think kind of as guys go on, and this is kind of one of the conversations that I have with a lot of our high schoolers is because a lot of them will play multiple sports. As you're getting closer and closer to like kind of that sophomore, junior year mark, maybe it's even earlier than that for some guys. Maybe it's when they get to high school. But at some point, if you want to take baseball as far as you could possibly take it, you're competing against these guys who are like the, the 1%, right? If like that's where you want to take it to. And so to beat these guys, if you're not as naturally gifted as them, some of these other sports are going to have to kind of fall from the way by the wayside so that we have this full year to kind of train for this because four years of development versus, you know, six months per year. So two years of development throughout high school is very, very different. And so when you're playing multiple sports at that later age where we've kind of done what you're going to do in time, in terms of kind of those younger levels of development at that point, kind of the gears need to, to shift a little bit towards, um, kind of getting really good at this thing that you actually want to be good at rather than this more general approach. Being a, being an athlete and being a well-rounded athlete, regardless of if it's going to be in that organized sport or through, you know, you, if, if kids are coming to you, you have, you have a CSCS, um, is, did I say that correctly? That's right. Okay. So, so, you know, for some of these kids who are like, ah, oh, like I'm not going to be a multi-sport athlete. That's great, but you still need to find a way, like you're saying, to become a better athlete. It's not like you're just going to get in the gym and throw year round and and train for baseball year round. You are training for baseball, but inside that training is going to be things that involve other aspects from other sports. So, like you said, the the foot based stuff with soccer, or if you want to do um, like lateral stuff for similar to hockey, like all of these things that you're doing in the gym 
are, are translating to other sports and maybe they're not getting them through organized sports. But even though you are specifying, quote unquote, specifying in baseball at whatever age you want to, you still need to find a way to develop as an athlete. And in doing so, that will help your your performance on the on the mound or if you're a position player off the mound. Um, but yeah, that. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of one of those things, right? Like in in the past kids would get this from like physical education classes, right? And you had um, teachers and stuff who were who were like very literate in these things. And that's not really happening as much now. Not that there still aren't great physical ed- education teachers because there totally are. It's just that, that those classes are much less a priority. So not everybody's even taking them when they're at the age where like that development is really going to happen. Um, so they do need to get that from somewhere else. So like for some of our for some of our middle school guys, it looks much more like a physical education class. And then for other guys who are kind of further along and are getting these kind of other sport exposures, it looks more like an actual training session just kind of pared down to that level. Um, so it really kind of depends on the level of athlete you're getting, what that's going to look like and what, the, what kind of exposures they're getting outside of those training sessions. How do you go about making sure that they're getting the appropriate training or appropriate things that they need, right? How do you go about assessing them and, and testing the metrics that they need to, to grow in and, and what they have strengths in? And, and how do you go about programming that? Yeah. So with our, so we have an assessment process that we'll go through with everybody. Um, but for our older guys, like high school, college and pro guys, it's going to look a little bit different than it will for the middle school guys. Um, and so for our high school, college and pro guys, basically the process will be, they'll come in, they're going to go through a movement mobility assessment, right? So we'll do passive and active ranges of motion. We'll do some kind of general movement literacy, and then we'll get a little bit more specific into that and kind of see how they do. Um, then they'll kind of get on the mound. We'll go through a mechanical analysis. So all this can be done in person or remotely. It kind of depends on where guys are. Um, we'll get them on the mound. We'll do a mechanical analysis. So we'll get video, um, and we'll do kind of a full breakdown of that. And we'll kind of see where they're deficient. And then we'll go through a force velocity profile, both for the lower and upper body, um, using kind of ballistic movements there. And so for the younger guys, what that's going to look like is they're still going to go through the movement mobility stuff. But generally, especially for the very young guys, you're, you're not going to get a whole lot of issues on the mobility side, right? Like these guys still move pretty well. Um, they're still kind of like these, especially if they haven't gone through pu- puberty yet, they're just like kind of these, these little rubber guys, right? So they can, they can kind of bend everywhere and it's really not a problem range of motion wise at that point for most of them. Um, but then you can kind of see some of the movement literacy stuff. So for those guys, we'll go through kind of a more general battery once we get into once we're in the kind of movement mobility piece. And so they'll do some basic movements like, okay, can you skip and do an arm circle forward? Can you skip and do an arm circle backwards? Can you skip backwards? Like, can you do all these different things? And so it's more general, but you're kind of seeing how competent they are movement wise. Um, and so from there, and then you're also kind of talking to them like, are, did you play multiple sports? Do you currently play multiple sports? Like, what are you doing outside of this? And you can get a pretty good idea of, of kind of where they need to be pushed in what direction in terms of kind of what, you need to give them in the training session versus what they're getting outside of there at their practices or like in their PE classes or whatever it might be. Um, and so that, that kind of assessment process is really going to drive the programming for everybody, no matter how young or yeah. old they are. I'm interested in your, your pro baseball career. And, and I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that, about how you got into it, about how the opportunities arose and then if you could just add, you know, the, the struggle that you had adjusting to pro ball and, and how you overcame those struggles. First year. So I played, I played indie ball for three years. So my, my first year, um, I was yep. like high eighties, low nineties, got an opportunity in the Pecos league, played there. And with all these leagues, kind of the the thing is always you have to go out and like perform immediately or you're going to get released, right? It's not like a major league organization where they're trying to develop you to bring you along to the major leagues. Like this is like this is the level, right? Like where you are is the is the level of this league. And so they need you to kind of immediately perform because that's what they're selling tickets for. That's the championship they're trying to win, whatever, whatever, right? It's not like a ball is like, they don't really care about the championship as much because they want you to move along to double A or triple A or to the big leagues. Like it's not like that. They they need to win now. So if you don't pitch well, you get released. And so that was a really short lived stint there because I did not pitch well. Um, 
performance anxiety really, really got me on that one. Um, and then the next year I didn't play. I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm just not good enough at the moment. Um, so I need to get better because I don't want to go back to New Mexico to live for the summer again. Um, I want to play somewhere else. And so I took that year and got better. And by this point, I was in the low to mid 90s. And so then I was getting more opportunities. So I had workouts for a lot of teams. I worked out for a couple of um, affiliate organizations. But at that point, it was kind of the thing like, okay, you're getting to be 23, 24 years old. And like you're touching, you know, 94, 95, which is cool. But like, we have 18 year olds who do this, like you're, you're just probably not going to get a free agent deal. Like it's just not going to happen. You need to be even better than this. And so I was like, okay. So I played indie ball that year. It went well. Um, I joined a team mid season. Um, and that was probably my best year of pro ball. I think I had a zero ERA that year, um, as a reliever. So I didn't pitch a ton of innings, but that was, that was that year. And then the following year played again in another indie ball league, same deal was low to mid nineties. And again, kind of that, the performance anxiety never really left. And it's something that I definitely should have taken care of uh, before I got to that point in my career. Uh, but it was something that I kind of always pushed away because there's always other stuff that I was working on. And it was like this, there's no time for this really. Um, and so I ended up getting released there. That's when I went and I trained and ran some of their strength and conditioning down at the Florida baseball ranch for a while. Um, so I was their strength and conditioning coach down there. And then I also trained um, so like I was throwing, I was lifting, I was doing that kind of stuff. Um, and I did some of the throwing training for them as well. And that was kind of where I was like, I thought I was going to play again at that point. And I kept getting better. Like my velocity kept getting better, but that ended up being like two years beyond that. I was still training really hard, probably got to the best point I ever was, but I just never kind of latched back on with the team again. So, um, I think that one of the really underrated pieces to performing at like a high level is kind of the mental skills side of it. Um, it was never something I put enough time into. And so by the time I got released the third time, I did start working with a sports psychologist and that kind of stuff. And it, I feel like it probably helped, but I don't know that I'll ever really know because I never played again after that, because I just waited so long to do that. So this is, this is something when guys come to me and they're having an issue like this, I'm like, all right, well, I have a lot of contacts in this space because I needed these contacts. And so I can kind of refer you down the line, kind of wherever they are, whether it's like a virtual or an in-person meeting, depending on kind of where these guys are located. Um, and so I think that was probably the single biggest takeaway. Um, but I also feel like when we have, you know, minor leaguers who are training with us in person or remotely, I have a really good idea of like the struggles that they're going through with living in these, you know, maybe not great places um, in terms of like what the housing looks like and then not making very much money. And, you know, like everything is just a grind to kind of get through that. So I think, having that experience gives you kind of immediate buy-in from these guys because they know you understand so yeah and it's very interesting sometimes fans who who aren't as invested in in baseball don't understand what you know these minor leaguers are going through or what um some of these pitchers are going through right it does sometimes it's not always a mechanical thing right you can have like you were talking about you can have great mechanics and you can be throwing hard but you know, when, when somebody's watching you on TV and, and they're like, Oh, why is this guy? Like, wh why is he getting hit? Or why is he struggling? Like sometimes it, it's not the mechanic, like, Oh, he needs to hinge better. Or he needs to have a, a better lead leg block. Sometimes it's not that stuff. Like you're, you're saying sometimes it's, it's a mental performance stuff. And, and that's a huge part of the game. Cause you're out there on an Island alone as a pitcher. And, and sometimes it can get overwhelming when you've never been in that situation before and not only are you having to perform like you said the pressure of having to perform or you're gone like in the independent leagues if you don't perform you're out not only is that a pressure you're trying to figure out how you're going to put food how how you're going to put food on the table for you or your family or or how you're going to move forward in, in your life so it's like this it, sometimes we get too short-sighted on the performance aspect where we think it's just the mechanics or just what's going on on the mound. But sometimes it's this whole thing of what is this person going through as a person? What is the, what is the whole picture, the bigger picture look like as a person? And, and that's really important to, to look at when you're looking at these athletes that are coming in, whether it be the minor leaguers or the middle schoolers, like we're all going through stuff outside of baseball, but that can affect our baseball. Same with baseball if we're having a hard time baseball that can piss us off and and affect us outside of baseball so it's all like this interconnected big thing that that we need to understand it's it's this sure. 
if you will, holistic approach to, to the performance of it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really interested in the processes that you go to produce content. That was one thing that I was thinking about is I love your content on Instagram and for the listeners who, who don't follow Tyler on Instagram, we're going to give you links and, and we're going to give him a, a time to tell you where to find him on Instagram after, um, we're done discussing some things, but, um, his Instagram is unreal content. You got to check it out. And I was just more curious on the research you do and then like how you, you know, what the process of that research is and how you come up with these, you know, creative topics and creative things to, to talk about on, on social media. Yes. I mean, a lot of times the, the thing that kind of like starts it is either it's an issue. Like when I was playing, it would be an issue that I was having that I wanted to kind of like dig deeper on, or now it's an issue that an athlete's having and then we're going to dig deeper on it. Or it's a question that I got from one of my guys and it got me kind of thinking about something else. And then it kind of sends me down this rabbit hole. Um, and so kind of in terms of the process of like what we'll do, it kind of depends on the topic, but kind of the first place we'll generally go will be to kind of journal articles. If it's, if it's something kind of like where there is a decent amount of research on this and we'll kind of dig into that. Or if it's something that, um, I already have kind of some background in, but I want to kind of fill in the gaps detail wise. Um, I'll kind of write an outline first and then I'll go back and fill it in with some research, right? Because one of the things that writing does for you, whether it's like on Instagram or in a blog post or an article for another site or a book or whatever, writing kind of forces you to clarify your thinking. And so you think you understand something really deeply until you're like, I need to put this down on paper or on the computer or whatever. And then you go to do it and you're like, man, okay, so I can't get quite to that third step that I need. Like I'm missing some steps there to kind of get to where I'm trying to go to make the point I'm trying to make. And I know this is true, or I at least am pretty confident this is true, but I'm missing some of like kind of the cognitive steps to get there. So I need to go back. I need to kind of like rethink what I think I know and go a little bit deeper on this. And so, you know, like for a lot of this, there's like an anatomy component. So we'll go there first and just kind of refresh ourselves on that topic. And then we'll go a little bit deeper on, you know, whatever that next piece is. So like if it's a mechanical piece, like let's say it is, you know, we want to talk about layback. We can go to the research on layback and like, what does that look like? What do the normative ranges look like for high and low velocity throwers? What, and then we'll go kind of a step further. What are the pieces that kind of play into this piece that is layback, right? Because layback isn't just, external rotation, right? It's thoracic spine extension, it's um, scapular posterior tilt, and then it's glenohumeral external rotation too. And so it's like, if we're trying to improve this, what are we doing on the physiological side to kind of make this happen? And then you can kind of go to the next step and you're like, okay, well, what are we doing um, on the training side? Like maybe the specific training side, like what happens when we throw overload balls or underload balls, right? Is there a difference between the two in terms of kind of what that layback looks like? Right. And then are these lasting changes or are these kind of like just acute changes when you're actually making this throw? Um, what are the risk factors if you don't truly have this range of motion and you go use these implements? So we'll kind of just go step after step, kind of filling in the gaps until I feel like I've got a really kind of deep handle on this. And if I get a comment from somebody asking a question, I can kind of respond thoughtfully and I'll, I'll have a pretty good answer on it. Um, if I don't feel like I'm quite there, then I won't post yet. But that's kind of the process we'll go and we'll generally go um, pretty deeply on it. But from seeing your content, your your posts and your material is 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 very deep and it, it's it's very well. Like you're saying now, now I'm understanding more of the process of it, so I can understand how why it it seems so thought out and executed well. And it's it's because it is right. It's like. I'm I'm glad that I get to see the process behind behind the content. So that's really cool. And, and thank you for sharing that. I'm I'm also interested in as we're talking about mechanics. I'm I've always been interested in, I guess, the the gap between mechanics and then just being an athlete. Like I'm always so interested between getting so deep because you can get deep down the rabbit hole in mechanics. And sometimes uh, for me, that actually at some point it is a detriment to my performance. I feel like I, I feel like a robot, but then, right. There's also being too far on the athlete side where you maybe need an adjustment to the mechanics, but are against it because you think you're going to 
move into the robot stage. So I've always had both kind of sides fighting and I just wanted to, to get your take on, you know, rhythm and athleticism and can, can that be like a, almost a un, untalked about factor that, that can play in over mechanics. Like maybe you don't have the perfect mechanics, but because you're so athletic and have so much rhythm, you're able to, to overcome bad mechanics. Do you need both? Is there a, a fine line where maybe you can get away with bad mechanics if you're so athletic? And and what are your thoughts on getting down the mechanic rabbit hole and, and if it's beneficial for everybody? Sure. So I think probably like a couple parts to this question. So I think first thing would be the digging deeply into the mechanical side. And then what does that look like in terms of kind of like making changes without becoming a robot? So that's kind of the first thing. So for us, what we're going to do when we're making mechanical changes. So um, like when it comes to motor learning, like we, we know from the literature that like verbal cueing tends not to work very well. Um, so like, you're not going to cue somebody out of doing something like if that worked, then like I likely wouldn't have a job doing what I'm doing because the guys sitting on the buckets, you know, calling themselves pitching coaches would be doing a great job. Everybody throw 95 plus and, and be, you know, dotting filthy sweepers all over yep. the place. Right. But like that clearly isn't the way we do it. And so verbal cues can play a role because it, you, you need to help guys understand it. Right. Because we need we need kind of that first stage because right? there's three kind of basic stages to motor learning. And in that first stage, basically what you're trying to do is kind of give guys a grasp on what they're trying to learn. So you want to kind of help them conceptualize the process of what we're trying to change, right? That second stage is going to be the struggle stage, right? They're going to struggle through some stuff and you kind of need to let them do that. And so this is kind of where the constraints drills come in to play. And so basically a constraints led approach is an approach to kind of changing these mechanical pieces um, with like kind of a, a, a nod to the motor learning research. And so what that is, is basically the constraints are kind of the guardrails for the movement. So if we know we want to get a specific movement from somebody or a specific kind of output from somebody, we can set them in certain positions to kind of make that happen. And so like if we're thinking about um, like, okay, how do we get somebody to go from a deeper point of scapular retraction and horizontal abduction um, to kind of pull their arm through instead of getting real pushy with the elbow, we can set them in specific positions and kind of maybe we give them a really simple cue of what they're trying to feel um, to kind of get them out of that. And then gradually we'll add layers to this. So we'll add a counter movement instead of it being a static position. Then eventually maybe we add the arm swing where we kind of feel the flip up and then do a full rep. And then kind of you're layering in the lower body and then you layer in pelvic rotation and then you layer in kind of the full delivery. And so gradually you're kind of building this thing out. So you're chunking it. All right. And so like, it's kind of the way musicians learn a piece of music. They're learning one piece at a time and not going through the whole piece. Right? They're going to be like, I'm going to learn this section really, really well, and it becomes a much more manageable thing. And we'll do the same thing with throwing mechanics. So that would be kind of the first thing. That's, that's what we're doing to try to make sure guys don't become robots. And so there's a couple more layers to that, but that's kind of the first thing. So the other piece would then be is guys need variety in what they're doing. So if you just do the same drills over and over and over and over again for years and years and years, and years you're going to get really, really good at those drills, but they're going to stop making you know, changes to um, the delivery that you're trying to make. And so at some point, maybe you're like, hey, this is the routine that I use pregame and it locks me in and puts me in flow state and whatever. And I want that routine to be the same. And that's fine. But if we're trying to make changes and we're trying to like kind of make our training demanding, then there needs to be some variety to that training. And it should be thoughtful in terms of progressions, just like it would be on the strength and conditioning side. But there needs to be variety. So that's kind of the, the second piece there. The third piece would be, there's a time and a place for being really thoughtful about your mechanics and really focusing on what you're trying to feel and what you're trying to do and, and all those kinds of things. And that's generally on kind of your lower or more moderate type of, of throwing sessions. And then when you get into a session where the goal is to kind of push output, so like a velo day, right? Whether you're doing pull downs or you're pitching from the mound or you have live ABs or whatever, that is not the time to be focusing on mechanics because that's how you become a robot, right? That's how you get in the Superdome is that, you are focusing on mechanics. We need to be focusing on output and executing that pitch, right? Like if you're in a game and you're like, oh man, like I really felt that, like I really got kind of pushy on that throw. All right. And then you can just leave it and that's fine. You notice that's cool. Some guys, that's fine. The other guys are like, all right, I'm going to really focus on this. And then they get away from focusing on the at bat or the pitch they're trying to execute or whatever. And that's when you really get problems. Um, so that's kind of the one piece on the robotic side. 
and then kind of to kind of go to the next piece that I, I thought you were kind of asking, which is like, how do we make these adaptations to, to throw harder? Like what, what kind of goes into that? And so there's a couple pieces to that. So there's kind of two broad categories, right? We have the physiological side and then we have the neurological side. And so like what on the neurological side, like what kind of um, adaptations are we going to make to kind of like make this happen? And then on the physiological side, like what are we going to do to um, the muscle tissue, the connective tissue, all of these things to kind of change what we're trying to change. And so there's a component to both throwing and there's a component to kind of the strength and conditioning side. Um, but how those kind of come together is going to be kind of how we make those adaptations. Um, and I, I think there was another, there's another thing that I was going to go to with that. And I can't remember what it was. So you were asking about how to not become a robot. Um, oh, you were asking about rhythm. You were asking about rhythm. That's what it was. Kind of, and, and you were asking about how, how certain things can cover up mechanical flaws and you still get these really high outputs. So, yeah, so there's a couple ways that, that happens. So how do we cover up the mechanical flaws? So everybody, it, generally, if they're getting to that level of like Major League Baseball, let's say, where we're seeing these guys or they throw really, really hard, they do something exceptionally well. And so like if we take like Nathan Avaldi, for example, so I posted about him before. Yep. He has a pretty elite lower body, right? His arm action is not anything you would ever teach, right? Like he's not really finding deep positions. He's not smooth. He's got a really stabby arm swing. His hip shoulder separation isn't crazy, but his lower body's great. His lead leg block is elite. And on the physical side, he's like 6'5", 260, and yeah. like supposedly super, super strong. Yeah. So those things play into it, mm -hmm. right? But then you have a guy like, um, you know, Tim Lincecum for example, right? And so he's got to maximize these movement qualities. He's got to find these super deep positions because he doesn't have these really long levers, right? The guys with the really long levers don't need to get to super deep retraction and horizontal abduction. They don't need to get super deep layback. They don't need to get super deep hip shoulder separation because they're still applying force to the baseball over this really long arc of motion because their arms are so long, because their body's so gigantic. Whereas the little guys are going to have to do everything right on, on both the physical side, so their general training side and their throwing side, the mechanical side, to kind of get to these really high numbers. Um, and, and then, so kind of one step further, stop me if I'm rambling, but kind of the rhythm and, and that side of it is that's how we connect these movements. So when we talk about complex movements like swinging a bat, swinging a golf club, throwing, whatever it might be, right, the kinetic chain connects all of these pieces. And so what's kind of happening is that energy is building like a wave as we go through it. And so if we time these movements correctly, if we segment these different pieces of the body correctly, we're going to get more output than we could from any individual piece if we kind of added all these little chunks together, because it's building as it goes through. And so if we've timed it correctly, if we've sequenced it efficiently, if we've done all these things really well, this is where the kind of the rhythm comes into play. If we have this rhythmic flow to it, we're going to get these really high outputs. Um, and so you're going to need that. Again, if you're one of the smaller guys, you're not going to be able to have this like choppy delivery like Evaldi or some other guys like Juris Familia from a few years ago. Like those guys can get away with it because they do a couple things really well and they're gigantic. If you're on the smaller side, you're going to have to be more efficient and you're going to have to get that rhythm piece and the mechanical piece kind of nailed down in order to get those really high outputs. I, I asked like a three-part question and you just answered it about as well as you could. So good job. Um, I'm interested also in, as we talk about mechanics and, and we talk about, um, or we've touched on younger athletes, like middle school athletes earlier in the episode. One of the things that has come to my attention as of late is the explosion in showcase teams and travel ball baseball teams. and I'm lucky. To, I say I'm lucky because I'm I'm from Vermont and, and haven't been. Um, I wasn't exposed to that as a kid. That wasn't part of. It wasn't even an option. We had like 11 kids on our team. Like that's how we that's how we rolled. Um, there was no way to to play travel ball team unless I wanted to drive three hours every day. You know, so um, I was never exposed to that. But now because of the because of the accessibility of it, parents are, are obviously wanting their kids to have as many opportunities as they can. And, and it, it's, and it's a great, um, I, I don't want to blame the parents because they're trying to do what they can to make their kids successful and they want to give their kid every opportunity they can. So it's, it's nothing against the parents. It's just the way the industry is, is becoming. Um, I'm just curious about, you know, what your thoughts on 
having kids throw that much, right? Because there's fall baseball now for, for youth baseball teams starting at nine U, right? It's not even like we're starting in high school. It can be nine years old, right? So there's fall baseball, there's winter clinics, there's spring clinics, you can play summer. So I'm just curious on your, you know, your advice or your recommendations, like, does it make sense to have these kids throwing eight months out of the year, nine months out of the year when MLB players aren't even doing that, right? They're taking, they're taking the off season off. Some of them are, it depends on their, their workload and how many innings they have. But it seems like sometimes our nine-year-olds are playing more baseball than the MLB players are. Um, So I'm just curious on, you know, your thoughts on that and, and how to keep the youth arms safe as best we can. Yeah. So, okay. So I think a a few things to, to that question, probably I'll probably answer in a couple parts again. So I think I push back on the major leaguers, not throwing as much um, a little bit there, because for the most part, those guys, there, there are absolutely some guys who are going to take like a month or two off in the off season, uh, but becoming more and more rare. Um, So for the most part, those guys are going to be throwing a lot. So, on the, on the really general side for us, like in terms of kind of planning out our year throwing wise, what we're looking for is we're looking for a period generally, depending on the guy, somewhere like six to 12 weeks where they're not going to be throwing at full effort. All right. And then for the younger guys, generally there's going to be more time. So I'll kind of talk about them last, but for like our high school college program, yeah. we're looking for a period four to eight weeks is generally kind of the the most reasonable we will sometimes go a little bit beyond that but we're looking for a time where yep. they're not throwing at full effort so that doesn't have to mean a full shutdown and for most guys yep. kind of gotten away from doing the full shutdown um <clears throat> and there's kind of a few reasons for that and so the first one is if if they're a guy who's not already like a big league all-star um yep we're, we can't really give up that development time right so we're we need kind of that period of time to train. So we're, we don't want to kind of get away from that. I'm sorry if you hear my, my daughter in the background. Uh, <laughs> that's fine. So uh, we don't, we don't want to give up that development time. So that's the first thing. The second piece is from like a tissue standpoint, right? Davis's law kind of tells us that <clears throat> um, soft tissue is going to organize based on the demands that you impose upon it. All right. So if we're throwing, we're going to have that, that fascia and that other kind of connective tissue stay organized you know, to kind of complete a throw efficiently. If we stop throwing, we're going to have that get a little bit more disorganized. And that tends to be when we get these little like injury or discomfort type of issues when we get back into throwing. Um, And so we've kind of gotten away from a complete shutdown for a lot of our kind of high school and beyond guys for the most part, just for a development standpoint and from kind of a health and safety standpoint. So that's the first thing. With the younger guys, generally, yeah, we're shooting for a period of, of like full shutdown because you will get some benefits from that, right? Like as you go throughout the year, you're getting kind of this connective tissue loosening, right? It's like the anterior capsule, the shoulder and some other pieces like that. And so when you kind of, you know, kind of pull back on the throwing or take it away completely from these younger guys, you will see those passive restraints kind of tighten back up, which is kind of what you're looking for. The other piece is if they're eight or nine, like we're, we're really not even looking at like the performance side of things. Like what we're looking for is that they're having enough fun. They're doing it relatively safely and they're going to, they're having enough fun. They're going to stay with this term because those are the guys who get as good as they can possibly be. Like if you come into the gym the first time and you know, your, your coach or, or your trainer or whatever is like a drill sergeant, it's not fun at all. Like you're never going to want to come back and you'll never have any idea how good you could have been just because you hated it so much. So like for those guys, it really needs to be fun. And so for them generally we'll push for some kind of full shutdown. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's crazy. I've had, I had a seventh grader a few years ago, had repeated talks with him and his parents about this, you know, he really needs to kind of do a little bit less baseball, but like he was having some arm pain, this kind of stuff. And I was like, it just really, we need to kind of get away from this competition year round. And he played 140 games that year. And so like at like the 60 game mark, I was like, Hey, this is, this is probably about as much as he needs. And obviously just kept going and going and going. So that was like kind of the the craziest one that I've had to this point. Um, But I think then with our, you know, high school guys, what you're seeing is they're showcasing a lot, right? Because they're worried about kind of missing this opportunity. And so the conversation that I'm having with, with parents and kids, cause you're right. The parents just want to give their kids the most opportunities they can. 
They want them to be able to play at whatever level they want to play at. They're just trying to like kind of help them with their career, right? So they have the best intentions. They just don't necessarily know because this is that's not their field, and that's totally fine. Um, and so the conversation that I'm having is is you're not missing an opportunity by not showcasing necessarily, right? Like if you think that exposure is the issue, which it's not in 2023, if you think that is the issue, think about like this as an example, right? If you go in front of the Vanderbilt coaches a hundred times and you throw 75 miles an hour, you're never getting signed. It does not matter. Exposure was not the limiting factor. All right. If you throw a hundred miles an hour and you post it on social media and they happen to see it, they will likely bring you in for a visit, right? Like exposure is just not the problem at this point. There's just too many, too many ways to get your stuff out there. It's just not an issue. And so if you're already really elite, you can pick and choose your showcases, go to one or two where either a lot of schools are going to be there or a specific school that you want to go to is going to be there, right? So those are the 90 plus guys in high school, 95 plus guys, even better. All right. And then we have the guys who just aren't quite good enough. So they're kind of below that like 85th to 90th percentile in their class. All right. They're below that level. Those guys just need to train and get better, right? Because they're not going to get the opportunities they want when they go and showcase now. And so those are the guys who just need to train more. And so either way, I think fall baseball kind of presents a problem for these guys because the guys who are already really good, they don't need to go play all that much, right? Go to one or two showcases. You can do it during the summer. And then you have an off season. Those guys can continue to get better. Those guys can stay healthy, all that. And the guys who aren't quite good enough, you don't need to go compete. That's not your issue. Like you just don't have the, from a baseball standpoint, the general qualities, right? Like if you're an outfielder, you don't run your 60 fast enough. You don't have a high enough outfield velocity. You don't have a high enough exit velocity. If you're a pitcher, your mound velocity isn't good enough. Like your off-speed stuff isn't good enough. Your command isn't good enough. Whatever it might be, like you need to work on those things before you can kind of get the opportunity. Um, so that's kind of how we're we're looking at those things, both in terms of the, the kind of year-round throwing piece and then the kind of year-round showcasing piece. So I have kind of different opinions on those two pieces um, just because I feel like we can manage the throwing load relatively well. Um but the managing the showcasing and competition can be a little bit more of a challenge if you don't get that buy-in from the parents, coaches, and players. Yeah. Last, the last thing that I really wanted to touch on and, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, but doing, doing the small things right. And, and how, how well you do the simple things actually matter. And we touched on a little bit like that. Oh, you can do this drill and gain seven miles, seven miles an hour, 10 miles an hour in a couple of weeks. But, you know, how, how much does the stuff off the field actually, you know, play in a role? Like you said, like it's sometimes it's not just the mechanics or the performance. You're going to be on the mound and, and be overwhelmed at some point. How well does that, the low hanging fruit, such as, you know, what you're eating, what you're, how you're sleeping, how you're going about your everyday um, life in school and academics and with, with your family, um, and for everybody, it's a little bit different, right? Some, some players don't have, don't have, have kids and some players aren't, aren't going to school. Some are, are in any ball, but you know, some of the guys that you work with are in college and middle school and they have to have, um, the ability to handle family relationships, social relationships, their or their academics, their strength and like all of that. So how, how does doing the the small things allow you to perform like the the recovering, the eating, and that kind of thing? Yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> this is a conversation that I have pretty frequently with guys. So, um, I think like you know you'll get the the question you know should I take like this supplement? Like, is this going to help me yep. do X? And it's like I have no problem answering supplement questions because it's totally reasonable. Like, I'm glad you guys are thinking about it. Whatever, but. If you're not already nailing, so like if you're a high school or college athlete, like you really need to be shooting for like nine plus hours of sleep, right? The Stanford basketball study where they had those guys do, uh, yep. they had to be in bed for 10 hours, all right? And so they weren't necessarily sleeping that whole time, but they were in bed for 10 hours. They saw an uptick in, in sprint speed. They saw an uptick in free throw yep. percentage, three-point percentage, all of these kind of really relevant performance metrics just by sleeping more, Right. And so if we can kind of take those same principles and apply that to baseball, like think about where that takes you. So if you're nailing sleep, you're nailing your nutrition. So like if we're trying to gain weight, you're tracking your calories and we're consistently seeing the rate of gain that we're looking for, right? If you're, um, you, you know, kind of are you hydrating well? 
uh, once you do, are, are you showing up consistently for training? All those kinds of things. Like, are you checking all of the like really general boxes, like the big picture stuff? If the answer is yes, then we can move on to talking about like, should you take this supplement? Why these kind of like more minute details, right? That's, that's great. Have no problem answering that stuff, but nail the really big stuff first. So that's kind of the first thing on like the academic side for guys. What, what I'll generally tell like the high school guys as they're trying to get recruited is like, look, <clears throat> you don't necessarily have to have like good grades for good grades sake. What you need to understand though, is that if you don't have good grades, you're going to be limited in terms of your college options. So if you're like, Hey man, this school is a really high academic institution. Like it'd be a great opportunity to play here. Like it's the right level for me. It's a really good fit. But you know, I have a, you know, three O GPA and really it needs to be like a three, eight or three, nine. Like you've just limited yourself. Right. And, and generally for most of these high school guys, we're just talking about a matter of effort. Like it's not like for most of them, again, for most high school isn't exceptionally hard. It's a matter of like, what are they willing to do to kind of have this opportunity? And so that's kind of the, that's kind of that thing on the college side, right? Like you kind of have to pick and choose your battles, make sure like you, you'll get a syllabus at the beginning of the year, you know, when you're going to have to hand in certain stuff, make sure that it's not going to be this thing where you have to stay up for an all nighter the day before you're going to have to pitch in an inter squad game. That's going to like determine what your role is going to be on the team in the spring, like have that stuff done ahead of time, or at least partially done ahead of time. So that you don't get in that position where you're falling behind and all of this stuff hits at once. Because then we also get from kind of this general stress, we get kind of greater injury risks. Like you see that around finals time all the time, right? The less sleep, all that kind of stuff. It really, it, it can give you kind of this perfect storm of, of problems. Um, and so you just kind of have to stay on top of that stuff the whole time. Cause you know, there's going to be more demands on your time than there is kind of the general student who's not playing a sport. So kind of doing all that stuff is, is going to be, um, you know, a really important thing. And then I think kind of on the, the, the social and kind of relationship family side is just like <laughs> all of these guys just realizing what their parents are doing for them, what they're trying to do for them. And when their parents get on them about like, Hey, you need to send an email to this coach or like, Hey, you need to do this or that for like their recruiting. Like I understand, like maybe they don't totally get it. Um, but you don't need to roll your eyes at them. Like it, they're doing a lot for you. Like they're paying for you to be here. They're paying for you to go to this showcase. They, they, they use all their vacation during the summer to travel to baseball games with you. Like just being generally more understanding with the people around them, I think is, is an important thing as well. Yeah, all these things that you're learning from baseball, you can always apply to life and and vice versa. If you're if you're learning how to handle a relationship or a a, a, a situation that maybe is stressful or not perfect in in life, like whether it's like you said, making sure you have time to to do your paper the night before, like that's not a that's not something you want to do. That's not a fun thing to do. But making sure that that you can get those those small things done can actually help your performance on the mound. So, you know, use, understand that the things that are happening outside of the mound and off the mound are going to help you on the mound. It's not just when you step on the mound, it all of a sudden happens. It's, it's going to be this work that's put in outside. That's going to allow you to perform on the mound. Um, and, and just being able to translate handling those stressful, not ideal situations in life can help you handle those stressful, non-ideal situations on the mound. Like you were talking about earlier when when things get going and speed up on you in the game a little bit. If you've already practiced that outside of of your baseball career, outside of your baseball life, and you're able to slow it down outside, it just becomes part of who you are. And now you can slow it down when you're actually playing the game. So that's all I got for questions for you. I'm, I'm going to go through our rapid fire questions. So I'm just going to fire off some questions for you and, and have you, have you answered the first thing that comes to mind? So I'll, I'll just get right into it. Uh, favorite book. Ooh, um, I'm going to go more general. I'll go outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Sweet. Good one. Favorite memory from baseball and favorite memory outside of baseball. Uh, favorite memory from baseball. Um, I mean, honestly, probably the first time um, I threw above 90 was that was a big deal for me. So that's probably that. And then favorite memory outside of baseball. Um, I'll go with my daughter being born. 
Awesome. Uh, have you ever been in flow state and can you describe it? Yes, I have. Um, and it's just kind of like you're, you're very in the moment. There's no outside thoughts. Um, it's just like tunnel vision, but in a good way. Um, so yeah, finding the way to get there is the challenge. What is something uncomfortable that you want to start doing in order to grow? Um, getting better about delegating, um, to, uh, some of our employees. So the next thing. Okay. Um, most valued non-material possession. These are tough ones. Sorry. Um, non-material possession, man. So like, do you have an example? Give me, give me yours. And then maybe that'll give me. Get me thinking about it. For mine, I think I I said I, I answered mine in my first episode, so it's a while. But I'm I think I said like my my relationship or my connection to my family because that's not like something I, you know, they're not I don't have it. It's not a material thing, but yeah, yeah. No, I would I would say the same. So my connection to my family and friends, um, my basically my whole group of of best friends um, has been my best friends since high school, and they all live for the most part, outside of two of them, they live within like five minutes of my house right now. Yeah. So So that's pretty sweet. um, That's a good environment to have. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, something you often forget you're grateful for. Uh, I, I probably the roof over my head, honestly, like, uh, it's a pretty great thing to have. Yeah. Yeah. Advice to your five-year-old self. Um, uh, don't be an asshole. <laughs> Might seem generic, but that's very good advice. I, I wish you would have told me that when I was five. So yeah. Yeah. That's, that's all I got. I want to give time right now for, for you to tell the <laughs> listeners where to find you and, and how to connect with you if they, if they want to learn more, work with you, etc. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, uh, the website is tyleransman.com. Um, so you can find articles, free resources, uh, you can apply to train there, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> on Instagram, it's uh, Tyler underscore Ansman. Uh, it's the same on Twitter. Um, and then on YouTube, Tyler Ansman. Um, in terms of kind of any upcoming projects, um, so obviously we have both remote and in-person training always available. Um, so feel free to reach out if you're interested in that, but we'll have a, an ebook coming out likely at the beginning of 2024. So that'll be kind of the next thing to look out for. Yeah. And we'll put, for those interested, we're going to put all of, all of Tyler's links in the comments so you guys can just click on that and and it'll be a little bit easier for you to find it. But, um, yeah, that's, that's all we got for today's episode. Again, thanks Tyler for coming on and, and look forward to, to talking with you in the future. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me.